Ritz and Cures with Lindy Burns, lawyer Bill O'Shea and psychiatrist Dr Steve Allen. Welcome to Ritz and Cures and tonight we're talking about trauma but in particular how it relates to men in particular falling off ladders. It is a major and hidden cause of death in, and disability in Victoria. So why is that the case and what can be done to prevent it? And in our soapbox segments, we're talking about the new legislation being planned on physician-assisted dying in Victoria. Belashay, welcome to the show. Nice to see you. Thanks, Lindy. And Good thanks, to be here. Thanks for wearing your pink pants. Well, I, 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 I just asked before we come on, is the ABC rule that you are allowed to wear shorts? So clearly, you know, my co commentator here doesn't seem to think it matters. He is wearing shorts, he but is. he's actually okay. You've got to have the legs for it, though. <laughs> well, I can't see his legs, and I don't think we should go into that conversation any further. Associate Professor Steve Ellen is a psychiatrist and director of the Psychosocial Oncology Program at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. And the shorts are blue? They are blue, Lindy. Yeah. And uh, I think Bill's um, getting away with those pink trousers. <laughs> you know, because I, th- I think of Bill, as you know, as a fashion icon. Oh, we all do. Actually, I think I might have got that tense wrong. <laughs> he, he was a fashion icon in 1950. <laughs> Um, well, your legs will be blue as well by the end of the day. It's pretty cool out there. It is quite so a cool match day. Your shorts. It's a cool day to wear shorts. But well done to both of you for doing that. Uh, can I just quickly ask, Bill, you've only ever been to opera as a concert, haven't you? Is that true? <laughs> well, not entirely true, no. I'm a, Have you I'm been a to great allowed... fan of Cat Empire. Uh, I've been you? to Cat Empire at the Forum. Cat Empire are quite loud. Was that loud? Yeah, but they're great. They are great? Yeah. Yeah. So I, have, I have no qualms with the greatness. It's not good for your hearing when you get older, you know, to have too much of this. A bit of it's all right, but I, I reckon guys in band, guys and girls in bands will pay later on, won't they, for hearing? Well, you know, I've, I have um, – I mean, there's a question without notice, so I shouldn't comment, but I have looked into this because I've been to a concert once where I woke up the next day and I had that ringing in the ears. Yes. And after about um, 24 hours, it still hadn't gone away. And so I got a little bit nervous and uh, as well as doing a Google search, I rang up the INE hospital. And they said, look, don't worry, 24 to 48 hours of that um, is, is pretty normal. Typical. If you do it consistently, it can damage your ears, but normally it's just your ears are in a little bit of shock and they will settle down. Sure enough, the next day it went away and I've been as good as gold. And also, of course, I've played drums for 25 years and so I've had my ears checked a couple of times, but that hasn't impacted. My hearing's still good. So mm. I don't know what the actual – so I don't think it's as bad as we think, although if there are any um, – ear experts out there who would like to text in and tell me I'm an idiot, feel free. <laughs> yeah, but it's, um, it's really about um, the other band members. The drummers wouldn't necessarily have it. I mean, you, you're not sort of playing. Well, we're sitting timpani. right over them. Yeah, it's loudest for us. You're right at the back where no one can see you, I thought. There's, yeah, a, so look, there's a real issue too with being a broadcaster when you have ears you know, const- have headphones constantly sitting around your ears and, you know, guests who talk really loudly. Like, sorry, that was too loud, everybody. <laughs> but, yeah, that can be a, a big It's, a, it's a big issue for orchestras too, orchestra can players. Can imagine. If you happen to be sitting in front of the, the brass section in an orchestra and you've just got your humble bassoon there, it can be you know, a week after week with, mm. the, with the brass blasting at the back of your head. You know, that's... You- yeah. It's a big issue. For you can of... get really high quality. I've said this before, I know, but you can get incredibly high quality earplugs these days. I'm having some made. Yeah. Well, I've got some too for, for you know, band practice basically. Yeah. And you put them in and the thing they do as compared to your, you know, over the counter, you know, cheapies is they let a, a reasonable balance of all the frequencies through. So you still get to hear the music at an appropriate volume instead of the normal ones. They take out, you know, just particular frequencies. So the song's too bassy. So you should give those to the audience as well. (laughs) That's just cruel. (laughs) 
This is cruel. Um, I'm having mine made for sleeping, by the way, not right. not because I'm needing them to be on the show because I'll spend the rest of my career going, what? Lynn, did you think you could get selective ones that just dropped out, Bill? <laughs> Oh, that nice. oh, that's funny. Can we please talk about this legislation? Physician-assisted dying legis- legislation. This was an election promise, as I mentioned, by the Victorian government. They're going to introduce the bill to legalise assisted dying in the second half of 2017. We've talked about the, the the legal backstory to this ever since it was it was something that the government had um, discussed, that, they were, that this was something they were prepared to uh, to look at. Where are we at with this bill? Well, if this bill is introduced and passed, Victoria will be the first state in Australia to have legislation of this kind. We were the first to have Dying with Dignity back in the late uh, 1980s, 90s, uh, with the Medical Treatment Act. Um, So what's happened is the government is convening uh, virtually a group of experts to give them advice on what should be in the legislation because they don't want to introduce it and then find there are problems with it in practice because the legislation deals with such a fundamental issue that you've got to get it right. So they're spending a lot of time and effort at the moment to make sure it's fine. I just want to go back a bit. There might be people, and I'm sure there are people listening to this, who who don't know too much of the backstory, and, and even those people who do know a bit about it, maybe they've forgotten some of it. So the issue of end-of-life care... And decision-making, I, I think we can all agree it's been in and out of the media, it's been in and out of various parliaments for decades, federally and in various states. Um, similar laws have been proposed over 50 times in Australia. I'd forgotten that that was the case. None of them have ever actually survived. There was a short period, we'll remember, when the Northern Territory introduced laws around euthanasia, then the federal laws overrode those Northern Territory laws, so that didn't last very long. It's interesting, though, because I think if I if I read the polls correctly, the public polls at the moment suggest around 45%, would this be right, this is what you're both mm-hmm. seeing, 45% of the public favour the introduction of such laws that support some form of assisted dying or euthanasia, whichever term you wish to use. But the reason I'm saying all this is the background is long, it's complex, but here in Victoria, we've gone through a process that will end in laws being introduced into Parliament. At the, yeah, in the second half of the year. Pass or not whether they pass or not Whether they pass or not is another matter. Mm. So we've actually been here before. The Northern Territory has gone even further than this before. They have, and overridden by the Commonwealth. Indeed. But, but should they get passed in Victoria, the Commonwealth does not have the power to override it? No, here. correct. Right. But remember that this, is, this will be a conscience vote, and you don't want to be in a position where the legislation has defects and it's not a party political debate about the defects. It's about people exercising their conscience vote. So you don't want everybody who's exercising a conscience vote to be concerned about parts of the bill that don't seem to be right. I'll give you one example. And one of the issues in the bill is that you have death has to be imminent before this cuts in. And Steve can go through some of the other criteria in a moment. But what, for example, would happen if... The bill went through and there was that clause in there that was one of the conditions. And a person's diagnosed, say, today with a a terminal illness, but they're quite otherwise well and they have a prognosis of, say, four or five years, but they decide to stop eating. Now, within six to eight weeks, death will be imminent. Does that mean that even though their prognosis is for five years, they, they in six weeks can take advantage of this legislation? So it's a loophole. I mean, that's one example of a loophole. Now, we 
we don't want legislation that goes through with loopholes in this area because the consequences are so dire. I'm just wondering how hard that is to do because it's almost like an individual case-by-case basis, isn't it, that people will be able to, I'm going to use the word manipulate, but that's not the word I mean, are going to be able to see ways in which the legislation could be of assistance to them that perhaps the rest of us might not have foreseen. Is that why doctors are involved, Steve? I mean, why are doctors involved? Um, I reckon I'd go back a step further. So, you know, legislation's been introduced hundreds of, you know, multiple times in Australia. Most recently failed in South Australia by one vote in their upper house about six months ago. And uh, the same all over the world. And if you look back at, you know, the last hundred years, around about every 10 or 15 years, most countries have some sort of debate around this. And the sorts of things that stop it getting through, there's two main arguments that stop it getting through. The issues you're just raising, in that it's just such a complex area. How do you legislate around the million individual circumstances? That's one thing. It's just too hard. And, of course, the other thing is a moral objection. Mm. And that comes from various groups. Not often comes from medical groups saying doctors should first do no harm. It's against our basic principle. And often, of course, from people who have whatever moral or religious objections to being involved in death. And so that's what, what um, tends to stop it. Um, yeah, so it, it is very tricky. But the Victorian government have gone about this one very carefully. They had a cross-party committee. It met for a year. It travelled to Canada, Switzerland, Netherlands. It looked at, a th- oh, I think it was about 1,400 submissions, and they came up with approximately 50 recommendations, and they divided it up into three groups. One group, the majority of the recommendations, about 30 of them, were all about strengthening palliative care, which the Victorian government, doctors, everyone says no-brainer, obvious, yes, go ahead. And more money's needed and that'll happen. Strengthening, sorry. Palliative no, care. Yeah, I understand so, that. But yeah. what does that mean? What does strengthening well, it mean? It means you can die at home, for example, because... Pro- providing more opportunity yeah, for people to choose the death. More service providers who can offer palliative care than, <clears throat> than there are at the moment, particularly right. in regional Victoria. And um, even in the city, they're limited. There are some programs, like Bill's mentioning, I think there's a program in Perth where palliative care physicians can visit you daily at home, for example, and care for you at home. And palliative care is all about relieving suffering. It's all about pain relief and the, all the things. It's not necessarily just for people dying, but it's all about the specialty aspects of relieving suffering when you can't actually cure the illness. Yeah, and, and I think the, the view for a lot of people who are surveyed is they would rather die at home, but they prefer to die in hospital because they think they'll get better pain relief. Mm-hmm. And so that's really a, um, an unfortunate consequence. So if you, can, if you can deal with the problem of pain relief at home, people have a better death, they have a better experience, they have their family there, they're not in, a, in, a, in an amorphous hospital you know, at the end of their life when and not surrounded by things that are familiar to them. And then the second big group of recommendations were around strengthening the laws of advanced care planning and all that sort of stuff, which again is pretty obvious. But the third and big one that really this is all about, the big recommendation was that we should have some sort of end of life legislation. Right. And so this committee's recommended it. And a lot of the public polls go as high as 70 and 80% of people supporting it. Interestingly, the AMA um looked at uh, doctors' views to, uh, around it, and around half of doctors didn't think it was something doctors should get involved in. Around a third were supportive, and the rest were unclear. Mind you, the AMA only represents about a third of doctors. And, so who are the people yeah. who normally do these polls? You, did you say the AMA has done some polls? Oh, everyone seems of to their, do them, Of yeah. their membership. Like, uh, even The Age did a poll after the most recent announcements in the last four or five weeks, and you know I noticed they had about, I think last time I looked, about 7,000 respondents, and about half were for and against. So it's one of those issues that you'll never get consensus on. No. Yeah, it's a hard one. So the, the basic criteria are that you have to be competent when you make a decision that you want to end your life. So 
it can't be someone who might, for example, have a severe dementia. They can't form that intention. So that's the first rule that yep. the legislation has to be to an do adult with. Victorian over eighteen. Yep, uh, competent, no coercion, um, and it must come from the patient, not someone who speaks for the patient. So it's got to be direct vo- voice of the patient involved. So an advanced care directive isn't sufficient. Um, the fact that you might have written that in your plan that that's what you want won't be enough for you to receive. Uh, uh, assisted dying. Basically, dementia's out. Yep, and you, and you can withdraw it at any time and you have to have what's described in the report as a serious and terminal condition and be in the final weeks or months of life. Uh, there has to be unbe- un- enduring and unbearable suffering uh, and you have to have two doctors. Your primary doctor must approve and you, and you need a second independent doctor's opinion. And that's where some of the some of the trickiness will come around this issue of final weeks or months of life. Absolutely. Like that's that's impossible to know obviously it's an educated guess. Um someone's prognosis at, at that sort of stage and and the definition of what's endurable and during an unbearable suffering. If I say that you know because that's that's very subjective. If I turn up to you my doctor and say this pain I've got is unbearable, other people might have with the same degree of pain might have different opinions and that, and that's the tricky bit. And, of course, some doctors might argue that we can treat that pain. Others might say, well, it's your right not to – you know, that, that's, it's very subjective and it's a, I think that's going to be hard. So if a person ha- meets all of that criteria, goes to their doctor and says, this is what I want to happen, then the doctor has to offer that as an no, option you have to them? get the two doctors. So the t- okay, so the, and then the, do- the doctor gives you the means to do it but doesn't do it him or herself. So necessarily, what if the doctor doesn't agree? Doctors with are allowed to opt out. Absolutely, they it's in, are. that's one of the recommendations. Is it's a uh, no doctor can be compelled to take part. It's a conscience issue. You mentioned dementia. I'm also thinking of of other forms of mental illness. Not that I like to put dementia into the mental illness category, but you know, for want of a better, no, it fits there. Does it fit there? Well, it's a disorder of the brain. It, is. it affects your mental functioning. Even if somebody in an advanced care plan has said, "If I find myself in this circumstance with these particular symptoms caused by dementia, then I want this." That's still not in this current legislation. In some countries in the world, that would be okay. And in some countries in the world, they allow children to have euthanasia. And that's another one of the big arguments against it. The argument against it is if we open the doors, it, that they call it the slippery slope argument. You know, if you, if you allow it at one end of extreme, where even if it's incredibly well legislated over time, it could become state-sanctioned yeah. killing. Yeah. Personally, I don't quite buy that argument, but I, I get where they're coming from. Yeah. So, so really, there are a lot of safeguards around it. And this legislation... When it's drafted, and it isn't just the usual. Like when you draft a bill, you normally give it to the parliamentary council, who's an officer of the government, who's very good at drafting and who who gives effect to what the various minister might want. In this case, two ministers, the Attorney-General and the Minister for Health. But because of the sensitivity of this and because of it being conscience vote, the view is they should get a wider group feeding in information to the Legislative Council who are drafting it, Parliamentary Council, um, so that's why there'll be a wider group of experts consulted uh, between now and the middle of this year, and the bill should be released um, sometime after June 30 this year. So then there'll be a conscience vote on that particular bill, but then Probably there's a cooling... Probably an 18-month delay before it would commence. Which is a kind of a cooling off. It is, yeah. 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 If, mm. So if it passes, which I still, honestly, I think is unlikely, but if it does pass, then there's an 18-month period to get all of the fine print right. Why do you think it's unlikely? 
I just because of the fifty odd times it's gone before and not. Yeah, happened. but don't forget, we passed a bill. We're the only state in Australia. We in Victoria passed a bill that said you could refuse medical con- treatment for a current condition back in nineteen or two thousand and one or whatever it is, the Medical Treatment Act. First in Australia to do it. In other words, you could die. You could refuse treatment and die if you so chose. And a doctor who ignored your wishes committed medical trespass. So they were doctors were forced to go yeah, along with it. But I still I think South Australia is even more progressive, and they've beaten us on a lot of laws, and they haven't got it through. Anyway, hey, one quick question for you, Bill. I'm not quite sure why everyone's so obsessed with doctors being involved with this. It strikes me that it's a community decision. And as long as the doctors have given the expert opinion, why can't we just have it where you go to, say, VCAT or one of the um, more simple courts to approach? And the judge looks at it and says, yep, you fulfill the criteria or no, you don't. And then here's your science certificate. Get the medication from the pharmacist. Wow. Blind Freddy can prescribe it because you're not worried about side effects, obviously. It's it, it's going to kill the person. So a pharmacist could give it. Um, I don't see... what. what why do you think it has to have doctors um, as the arbiters? Well, you've got to have you've got to have a doctor inform the court that the person is in a situation that satisfies the requirement for dying, assisted dying. Because otherwise, the the VCAT judge can't yeah. say it meets so the I, criteria. I agree, you need the doctor being given expert evidence, but I don't see why they make the final decision. Well, the patient makes the final decision, not the doctor. I mean, the the patient asks for relief and wants to die. And has to, and that request goes to two doctors. Now the doctor mm. <clears throat> doesn't just make up a decision that we're well, sick of treating you. I'm going to um, give you this so you can end your life. The request has to come from the patient. Yeah. So the patient requests. The doctor says yes. You fulfill the criteria. And the second you doctor, you have unbearable suffering, and your death is imminent within months or weeks. And then you take those opinions along to the court because it's an incredibly serious. Why do you decision. need a second decision? Because it's a legal decision whether you fulfill it. And at the end of the day, is it? I th- well, yeah, it's a the first thing the VCAT member would do, or the Supreme Court would do, would put it would be to put an expert in the witness box, and say, "You tell me, does this person? Well, of course I do. I've, I've signed the certificate, uh, Your Honour. So why are you here? But I then it becomes like, a decision yeah. of the, the court. court. And well, I like that why? because I think it's such a serious thing. I'm ending my life. It becomes objective. Yes, more more objective than the doctor's. Subjective and so view. would that mean that the family could come along and argue against it in front of the judge? I would imagine so. Well, well it's a because, personal matter. Why but, should the family have any say in this? Well, the judge can say you don't get a say, family. Why should you? But the point is mm. a judge is deciding the legalities, not um, a, well, a lay um, judge, do a doctor. You, do you know what I find fascinating about this is that there's just the two of you sitting here and we're already in a difficult conversation. I think both sides of this are completely valid, and that's why this legislation is so difficult. There's a lot of text about this. I think we want to go back to it, particularly talking about people with psychological conditions further down the track, because a lot of people are texting about this, and I think that they have every right to, because this is not that's not being addressed with this legislation. Well, we should have added that if there is a if there's a suggestion of mental illness, a psychiatrist is involved. So, yeah, yep. I mean, we didn't say it, but that is the case. But that is the case. But not, in, not um, someone who's lost capacity. By the way, and crucially, if this conversation in any way has brought up issues for you, and sometimes we're fully aware that they do, maybe you've just been through something quite horrendous, watching somebody die from terrible pain, and uh, or perhaps you're in that situation yourself. Remember Lifeline 13 11 14, 13 11 14. Uh, They are there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This is Ritz and Cures. Ritz and Cures with Lindy Burns. 
And my regular contributors in Melbourne lawyer Bill O'Shea and psychiatrist at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, Associate Professor Steve Allen. And our special guest tonight <clears throat> is sitting opposite me now and bravely between the two gentlemen. Her name is Dr Helen Ackland and she's a Senior Clinical Research Fellow and Senior Clinical Trauma Research Fellow at the National Trauma Research Institute, which is based at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. She's also Senior Lecturer in the Department of Epidemiology and Preventative Medicine at Monash Uni. But what we're really interested in tonight is just over a year ago, she and her Alfred colleagues published some important findings on ladder falls. It's called Danger on Every Rung. It was done in collaboration with trauma doctors at the Alfred. The first such study conducted in Australia on the mortality and morbidity resulting from ladder falls. And the study found that the incidence of ladder-related falls is in fact increasing and it represents a disturbing trend, particularly in the context of increased life expectancy and the impending retirement of the populous baby boomer generation who still think they're 25. Helen, it's great to meet you. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Lindy. Good evening. Before you did the research and looked into this, was this sort of like a theory running around in your head that you were starting to go, hang on, this looks very repetitive here. I'm seeing a lot more of it. Or were you surprised at the results? No, that's how the research began. We saw uh, quite a number of people admitted to the intensive care unit and we, we started thinking there are a lot of these people, what's happening in the community and also what's happening to them uh, once they leave hospital. So that's how this research started. And what were they presenting with? What sort of injuries? Uh, so this um, particular project was focused on the intensive care, um, more serious injured patients. So this is the first time that that particular group has been uh, studied. And the majority of them were presenting with traumatic brain injury, which is um, uh, quite can be quite severe. And um, we, uh, we found that um, we had, as you said, about 25% of patients uh, die from traumatic brain injury after ladder falls. And uh, one of the other significant findings was that at 12 months, fewer than half of the survivors were home and able to self-care. Oh, that right? That's um, quite significant. That um, is, ex- is extraordinary. Mm. So, so the, the, the damage was so great that they needed caring for. It, exactly. And, and acquired the, brain injury type care. Uh, it acquired brain injury or um, significant other injury, for example, chest, pelvic, um, limb injuries, um, which required additional care. How far are they falling? Um, they're falling. Uh, we looked at patients who fell a meter and above, so they're they're falling around a meter up to three, three and a half meters. Still, a meter's not very far, is it? A meter's not far, but the height is less significant than what they actually fall on and what they hit. And unfortunately, we've had patients who've fallen a meter and have hit the edging of garden bed, uh, a garden bed, for example, and sustained quite severe injuries and and unsurvivable injuries. So as so these are not these are not work injuries, are they? No, these are ninety percent of ladder falls are, are domestic in the domestic setting. We're only seeing about ten percent of occupational uh, injuries now, and the reason for that is occupational health and safety standards exactly. are, are quite uh, regulated now. They do, but the problems are occurring in the domestic setting. Of course, they are. So, what are the big risk factors? Who is it who's falling off ladders? 
Unfortunately, it's men over the age of 50, so the older men are, are falling. They're, um, they're the, the problem group, if you like. And the reasons are many and varied. Um, these um, patients generally are the, uh, the people who do the work around the home that requires ladder use. Mm-hmm. Um, cleaning gutters, <clears throat> cleaning gutters, painting, mm. uh, etc. And I think um, I think women delegate as well. So we have fewer women. Or say, and I quote my mother right now. Hello, mum, if you're listening, my love. Uh, darling, well, should get someone to go and do la 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 whatever that domestic chore happens to be. And, oh, dead! Oh, I'll just get that out, and I'll just go up there myself tomorrow. No, you're eighty-one. Do you have to? We can pay somebody to come and do this. Or mm. oh no, it's still he still thinks he's twenty-five yeah. and goes out. And it's I mean, how this hasn't involved him in the stats is. Mm. Beyond me. Well, we have a number of patients in their 70s, 80s, and even 90s. Mm. So what if you can't afford to pay someone? Um, That's a good point, Bill. If you can't afford to pay someone or you don't have a family member to delegate to, then that that can be really difficult. Um, For example, if you you wanted your gutters cleaned, it would cost you anywhere from $100 to $350, depending on the size of your house, if you use a commercial company. Uh, and acquired if, brain injury costs, how much? Mm, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And loss of retirement. Exactly. But I would also wonder, you know, because something you said earlier makes me think this. You said most of them are home-related injuries, not work. Now, clearly 99% of the ladders are being used in a work environment. So they've managed to get it under control through safe use of ladders. Mm-hmm. And I noticed, I, I, I quickly had a squiz on the in, on that internet thing. And there's like, you know, there's this whole lot of recommendations for work safe about how to do it. And so that's the other thing that gets me. If we're not going to tell, if we can't tell people not to get on ladders, we should at least be telling them how to do things safely. Like, you know, when you mention gutters, that's got to be the absolute craziest one. I've done it myself, you know, because you have to either get down and move the ladder constantly or do a lot of reaching. Well, this is a text that says it's not climbing the ladder, it's stretching too far Mm. because you're too lazy to climb back down Mm. and move the ladder. Or you've you've got it on the garden bed and it sinks in one side and not the other. It's not a stable footing. Yeah, That's right. So so So, the biggest problems are overreaching and the ladder falling sideways or the ladder slipping out at the base. So either the ladder feet are on a slip surface, for example, polished concrete, a patient um, reported falling on recently, um, or having the ladder too far from the wall. So there's a four to one rule for every four metres up the ladder extends, it should be one metre from the wall at the base. So often people have the ladder too far out from the wall, so when they climb, it it slips out at the bottom. And interestingly, on the WorkSafe guidelines that I read, you know, that was the the first, they have a whole lot of tips, a couple of pages, but that's the first, all about securing the base of the ladder, even ground, correct, et cetera, et cetera. That's right. And we, um, in in our uh, ICU study, we actually published a a table of ladder safety tips. Oh, what are they? I love tips. Which are now on the Alfred website. So if people go to the Alfred website and uh, key in ladder safety tips, and what if you just Google ladder safety tips? Will it come up? They probably should come up. I think up. just put ladder safety tips Alfred. Yeah. Just because and, you could get them. And from uh, have you have you asked patients who have survived? Because don't forget, as you're on the way down, what you should be thinking is, I've got a one in four chance of dying. <laughs> oh yeah, nice, Phil. <laughs> Anyone exactly what thinking, You've got a one in four chance of dying. <laughs> Especially if you're over 55. So you're, you're in the three out of four. So all you've got is an acquired brain injury. What do they say they expected to happen to them on the way down when they hit the ground, mm. most of them? So we, we're, in fact, conducting a new research project at the Alfred Now Prospective 
project to actually interview patients on on their thoughts ah. and what actually happened and the type of letter, etc. And we ask patients what they thought worst case scenario was before they fell. And invariably, they say minor injuries. So they don't realize that um, someone can fall from, uh, sorry, die from falling from a ladder or can sustain really significant injuries. Well, there's a text that says, my husband fell off a ladder and broke his ankle. But I feel terrible because I'm the one who nagged him to put it up there in the first place and he was happy watching the footy. But that I think that's what people think, that that's the worst case scenario. That's right. Breaking the ankle. Mm. When in fact, that is probably the best one can hope for that's by the right. size of things. And head and spinal injuries are really significant. Last year at the Alfred, we had four patients who were paraplegic after falling from ladders. Oh, and if you tragic. if you add that to older age and chronic illness, that's a, that's a dire outcome in itself. So you can be totally fit one day, uh, you know, get up to hang the picture or change the smoke alarm and mm-hmm. be paraplegic. That's right. Within. So... Yeah, so, I mean, what what's the solution? Steve said, how do we make it safer? I mean, should you wear a helmet, for example? Yes. And, you should. And that, yeah, absolutely, a bike helmet. That's our major recommendation from the ICU study because um, uh, traumatic brain injury was the most common cause of death. We know from uh, cyclists on the road that bike helmets uh, mitigate the risk of traumatic brain injury. So that's our major recommendation. And we tell our patients at the Alfred... Uh, who've already fallen from ladders, um, to buy a bike helmet or or use the one they already have and clip it to the ladder when they're not using it and it reminds them to pop it on before they use the ladder. That's probably one of the most important safety tips. And I think, too, checking your ladder. I mean, mm. how many people have ladders that they bought 25 years ago, if not more? Because it, it only gets used once every few years. That's right. And it just sits there and then you pull it out and it doesn't. one's a bit rickety on one side and that step's a bit broken it's just hopeless this text here i want to read some my three-step ladder three-step ladder has a warning on the second step saying not to climb above the first step seriously i might as well just stand on a medical (laughs) textbook (laughs) i love that text and this from kim in collingwood i'm 60 i'm not old okay i'm not old not my fault that i fell the ladder slipped from under me i'm not old (laughs) i'm not old is in big capitals which Mm. is great let's talk to phil he's in Berwick. hi phil Good evening. Good evening. What's your story? Uh, well, I'm nearly 60. Yeah. I'm not old. Not old. No, but I'm a postie. And I spend six and a half hours a day riding around on a motorcycle, most of it one-handed, balancing, perfectly safe. Yeah. Haven't had an accident in the six years I've been doing it. On the weekend, I stepped on a chair to wash the windows and nearly killed myself. So you fell off the chair? Not quite, but I just had no balance. Is oh, it, that's interesting. So is that the issue, Helen? Is that what Phil's yeah. saying? That when you're on the ladder, do you get dizzy spells? Or what? Hap- why do people fall off? Other than overreaching, because mm-hmm. I, I noticed when I was up a ladder a few um, weeks ago that as I got to the top of the ladder, and it wasn't just altitude. It's like altitude. You know, you just you feel a bit wonky mm. because you're not on the floor. Your feet aren't balancing you. Is that one of the reasons you, you it, feel wonky? It is one of the reasons. It's less common than the ladder setup problems, though. Um, but we do have people who report um, being dizzy and falling from the ladder and the ladder staying upright. And because that's the only time you find out, though, is when you're standing there. It's sort of too late, really, that, isn't it? It is too late because you're up, up, yeah, high. You're up high. Um, and one of the possible problems is medications for chronic illness. And one of our theories is that people on antihypertensive medication for high blood pressure will occasionally 
be dizzy. Um, and that's um, one of the, th- the um, things that we're looking at with the new study is whether people are on antihypertensives yes. and whether they're... More prone. Uh, that's to right. It, yeah. yeah. Steve? I love to, you know, turn shrink on these topics. Um, <laughs> the thing that's grabbed my attention there was Bill, who has known about your research for a couple of years, <laughs> and I've heard him talk to me about it, just talked about how he was up a ladder a few well, weeks ago. There's a big ago. crack in my mother's yeah, bedroom but wall. Point being for Helen... So why do you, do you have a sense of the psychology? Why is it that people like Bill and, to be honest myself, even though we shouldn't be up ladders, why is it that we do it? Even We know the research. We've read it many times over many years. Why are we doing it? What's wrong with us? I think um, jobs like these are associated with masculinity, possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, people see their identity as, as a male, as being able to do these kinds but of things. And pink trousers, as we highlighted <laughs> earlier in the show. Not that I'm saying that's non-masculine. Trousers. I think I've just become, yeah, um, I've just made a gender like. error. It's yeah. safer yeah. up a ladder with pink trousers than shorts. <laughs> so there's masculinity. What else? The sense that people don't want to grow old, that we don't want to acknowledge that um, there's no, certain I don't things think we, we can't No, do. I don't think we see being up a ladder as being dangerous. That's I, right. I agree. I, I, don't, I just don't think we think that's that a dangerous thing. That's what you're asking. I'm just going to spray my ankle if I come off this. That's right. Yeah. People see it as a benign mechanism yes. of injury. And and that's why public awareness is uh, such an important um, part of uh, research like this, is informing the public about what types of injuries actually occur and what we can do to prevent them. Is, is, is this a higher death rate than road trauma, one in four? Of, uh, I mean, do older road trauma patients have a death rate of... One in four? Well, um, just to qualify that, one in four is the ICU-admitted yep. major trauma. Yep. So we have we have an average of 1,400 ladder falls presenting to emergency departments in Victoria a year. Um, last year, for example, we had 1,750. That's more than the road toll would be. I mean, not that they're no, deaths. No, not even close. They're just it, cases. It, it's more, that's more than the road toll. Um in terms of uh, pre- presentations, but we only have about nine to ten deaths from ladder falls a year in Victoria, right. whereas so, we have 291 yep. last year. So it's example. come down from 1,700 to 1,400, you're saying? No, we're saying an, an average of 1,400 over a decade, oh, but, right, right, but right. last year there were 1,750, so, so it's, it's getting worse. It, it is getting worse. Hey, so one of the points Lindy made earlier that I'm interested in your thoughts on is we have the lowest rate of deaths from trauma you know i don't think that's road trauma what is it about victoria's system that um makes us one of the world leaders in terms of uh um reviving people who have been injured in trauma traumatic accidents right so um victoria has a long history of trauma prevention um strategies um uh going back to the late 60s when we introduced a 0.05 blood alcohol limit and mandatory motorbike helmets. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then in 1970, we had the highest road toll um, we've ever had. It was 1,061 people died. In Victoria alone? In in Victoria. Yeah. That that was the stimulus to introduce mandatory seatbelts. And we were the first place in the world to introduce mandatory seatbelts. We're accused of being a nanny state as yeah. a result, but um, look at how far we've come. And since then, there have been various strategies. Now, the reason at the moment we have the lowest um, trauma um, mortality is because of the Victorian state trauma system. So back in the mid-1990s, um, the Department of Health, with a variety of clinicians from uh, hospitals around Victoria, got together and uh, looked at the problem of trauma mortality and morbidity. Um, And this resulted in the Victorian State Trauma System, which is an integrated 
uh, trauma system with three major trauma centres at the hub. So the Alfred and the Royal Melbourne are the adult major trauma centres and the Royal Children's is the is the paediatric and, major trauma centre. And what do you mean by integrated? So um, we have, um, we have uh, integrated as in... The, excuse me. The majority of major trauma uh, patients will be transferred to a major trauma service from the roadside, for from, example. From the roadside, if they're within forty-five minutes travel distance by air or or uh, road car, and as a result, we've been able to pool uh, the trauma expertise and resources in those three major trauma services, and uh, what that has done is actually reduce the morbidity and mortality in Victoria considerably. So we're very lucky to have that system. Well, it actually sounds to me like it makes perfect. Sense. Mm. I'm kind of astonished so it doesn't happen anywhere else. As trouble as a kid going <coughs> past my balcony uh, night and day. Is that what they're doing? That's what they're doing, exactly. I want to take some calls before we wrap up. Frank has joined us. Hi, Frank. Good evening, Good Lindy, evening to you, Lindy sir. and Steve and Bill and Dr. Helen. Good evening. <laughs> and I have stepladder envy because mine was 1.2 and Molly's was 3.3. <laughs> yes, but yes, did you come out of it slightly better than Molly? Um, I think so. I did a triple back somersault with Pike and don't remember the going down as Bill was talking about before but two weeks in the offer then two weeks at Caulfield and then six months rehabbing in Frankston so yeah and I've been working on it ever since and is now nearly 10 years old mm. what the the injury or the yeah. ladder well the injury off the, injury the ladder, off was, the ladder. Was, is 10 years on the wow. t- on the 14th of October this year yeah. what do you say to people Frank oh, well I'm lucky to be alive because in actual fact what I did should have killed me because yeah, I have no memory of actually... Oh, what do I say to people as in encouraging them not to... Yeah, 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 yeah. Not very good at that because I'm sort of fit into the category of um, can't afford, probably can, someone... And, you, and when you live on your own, you do things... Well, I have a wife that doesn't do things like that, but I do them and you sort of tend to head to that direction and continue to climb. Are you still climbing now? Are you telling me that? Uh, only, only very low A-frame ladders, those ones. Frank, you're a recidivist. Yeah. <laughs> so recidivist. Frank, how old were you when it happened? I was 61. I'm mm. now nearly 71. Yeah. yeah. Man, thank you for calling us. A timely reminder. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bob's in Gippsland. Hi, Bob. Hi, uh, Yeah, it is, mate. How are you? Good, thank you. Hey, uh, I used to um, uh, climb trees up to, like, 70 metres, uh, collecting seeds. I had a seed collecting business. I had balance like a cat. Yeah. And um, I realised I, I stopped climbing because I realised I just haven't, didn't have that reaction anymore. Yeah. And I had a big tree in, uh, on my farm and got a friend to remove it. Um, it took them three hours just to get it down with their tree because I decided not to do any more climbing. Mm-hmm. And then the Christmas before last, I was uh, probably a metre off the ground and the ladder went into it, slipped into a rabbit burrow and I lost balance and struck a strain, a, a fence strain on the way through. Mm-hmm. And hit my ear. Luckily, just got my ear and didn't get my head. Yeah. And split it. it made my ear in two pieces, like the top and lower half. And they had hellish trouble um, trying to sew it together because of the the gristle, because of the um, cartilage. I bet. How long ago was that? Uh, uh not, not Christmas before last. But How they, are you now? Oh, oh whatever, yeah, no, yeah, good. This is one uh, meter, one meter high. One yeah. meter, and I was sort of, uh, and it sort of taken me out, but um. And how I was in trouble trying to uh, deaden it, so what just, it took two hours. The next day they wouldn't sell it that night because of the, the worries of the cauliflower ear. Yeah. And they tried for two hours the next day to deaden it, and I just said, look, just sew it up. So I just sewed it up. And <laughs> would a helmet have helped would it, um, if you'd had a helmet on? Look, we, 
we do a lot of horse riding, and, and um, except for last Sunday, I was a bit silly. We, we've adopted every time we get in the horses now, we all wear helmets. Yeah. Um, and that's changed where you always wore on a Cobra. We've structurally said when any friends come, we all throw on helmets with our horses. Mm. I think um, that probably would be it would be able to be used. I've got to wrap you there, Bob. We're heading no to the news, but mate, thank yeah. you very much for your story. Fine, and I think that that is a real lesson for everybody. It's a meter off the mm. ground and a man who is so used to climbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many texts. One that says, as a fifty-three-year-old male who has spent much of his working life up ladders, could the stats at all be skewed by weekend do-it-yourselfers whose qualifications are as lawyers <coughs> and doctors? <coughs> <coughs> That's from Matthew with a really good point. Um, there's exactly. so many really good qu- um, things that are coming up. One that says, uh, I'm, I've come late to the conversation, but as a paramedic, I'm staggered at the rate of older blokes we pick up off the ground, some of whom who don't survive. In the feeling dizzy matter, I have a theory that while many don't necessarily have a fear of heights, we have an instinctive fear of landing from a height. And once we subconsciously or consciously realise the risk, the fear or instinct kicks in and creates either fight or flight anxiety, raising HR and BP, etc. Uh, really good points. Thank you, everybody who's texted in tonight. Thank you so much, Helen, Dr. Helen, Most for welcome. coming in. Our guest tonight, Dr. Helen Ackland from the Alfred with Bill O'Shea and Steve Ellen. It's not a good Father's Day present on the ladder, is it? Shut up now. <laughs> Take your pink pants and go Unless home. It's with-